0: Champagne. There are five major districts in Champagne, and each produces numerous base wines that differ distinctly within a region, as well as between regions. When these wines are blended in various proportions, many contrasting styles are produced. The best way to appreciate regional influences is to seek out grower-producer champagnes. Montagne de Reims. The vineyards of the northern Montagne face north and would not ripen grapes, but for the fact that the Montagne itself is a freestanding formation which allows the chilled night air to slip down the slopes on the plain to be replaced by warmer air from a thermal zone that builds up above the montagna during the day. The vines here generally produce darker colored, bigger bodied wines than those from the southern montagna, which often have a deeper flavor, more aromatic character, and greater finesse. Primary grape variety, Pinot Noir. Best Villages, Ambonnet, Aÿ e. Champagne, Bouzy, Verzenay, Verzi. Côte des Blancs. The name of this area is derived from its almost exclusive cultivation of white Chardonnay grapes. The wines produced from these grapes have become the most sought after in all Champagne. They contribute great finesse and delicacy, yet mature to an absolutely unequaled intensity of flavor. Primary grape variety, Chardonnay. Best Villages, Cremant, Avise, Le Manis-sur-Auger. oger vallee de la Marne. Essentially easy-drinking, fruity, and forward wines produced from an extremely high proportion of Pinot Meunier, which is cultivated in the frost-prone vineyards due to its late bud break and early ripening. Primary grape variety, Pinot Meunier. Best villages, Marweser for Pinot Noir. Dizzy and Haute-Villers for both Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. Cumier, Levergie and Saint-Jean for Pinot Meunier. The Aube. Ripe, fruity wines are produced in this southern part of Champagne, which is closer to Chablis than the classic vineyards of the Marne. The wines are better in quality than those of the outer areas of the Vallée de la Marne around Chateau Thierry. Primary grape variety? Pinot Noir. Best village? Les Risseis, Avrilini. Côte de Cézanne. The Cézanne is a rapidly developing area 16 kilometers southwest of the Côte de Blanc. Like its neighbor, the Cézanne favorite Chardonnay but its wines are fruitier with less finesse than those of the Cote de Blanc and can be quite exotic and musky. These wines are ideal for people who enjoy the new world sparkling wines, but may have difficulty coming to terms with the more classic style of champagne. Primary great variety, Chardonnay. Best Villages, Beton, Villeneuve-Legrande. All right, so that was from the Sotheby's Encyclopedia by Tom Stevenson, and he is truly a champagne expert, and I really like how he summarizes those areas. And yeah, really cool book, covers the world of wine. It's definitely a, a hefty tome, but something worth picking up if you want to really dig deep. And anyways, this is Nikki D. What's up, friends? Nikki D here with Medium Plus. And today we're talking about champagne. And it's really my pleasure to do an interview here, speaking with winemaker Cyril Benet, a good friend of mine. He's with Champagne Bonnet Ponson and He's a winemaker six generations in. It's a historic estate from his family, and he cultivates both this classic style of champagne as far as wine, but really promotes kind of a modern leading edge of the wines as well. So a nice balance there. He does organic growing and really has a wonderful approach, and I am actually importing Cyril's wines through Unicorn Imports, and that's my my new company based here in Seattle, Washington, We're bringing in the wines, and you can also find them from a few other suppliers in the West Coast, in California, Oregon, and in the East Coast as well. So pretty exciting to get to know Cyril and his wines. The podcast today is mixed and edited by Chris Barr, and he's got a new website, baraudio.com, B-A-H-R. So definitely check that out. And I wanted to mention that the podcast today is supported by Code38. Now, these are, in my opinion, the best wine openers in the world. And that's a big statement, but I, I really do believe it. Each one is handmade by my friend Jeff Turing, and he lives near Warwick, Queensland, which is in eastern Australia, somewhere near Brisbane. It's kind of in the outback, and uh, it's kind of far out there, but Jeff makes everyone by hand on his own, and they're made from almost like aircraft and space-age grade aluminum stainless steel and titanium and they're designed to last a full lifetime so unlike a wine opener that might break after a couple months or a year of heavy use these will last forever and all the parts can be replaced so very high quality i do feature these on the medium plus website and you can use the coupon code podcast to get 15 percent off but yeah anyways i've got a, a huge amount of excitement to be talking with cyril here and here comes our interview so enjoy cheers Hi, Cyril. Bienvenue. Bonjour, Nick. Bonjour. Ça va bien? Ça va très, très bien. Très, très bien. Mm-hmm. À Seattle. Seattle. Elle est belle aujourd'hui. La ville est très belle. Très belle. Ha. I've been working on my uh, French this week, huh? I'm doing okay. You're doing very good. I'm doing very good. Well, it helps to... Better every day. Better every day. You know, That's, that's a good rule of life. Have you ever heard of Kaizen? Kaizen. Kaizen is a Japanese concept of ongoing continuous improvement that every day we can do just a little bit better. Never heard about that. Oh, you should try it. <laughs> I try it. <laughs> I still try it. You still try it. I'm a big fan. What I'm not a big fan of is my orchid. I just cannot figure out how to take care of it. My other ones are doing good. Mm-hmm. I actually have I'm growing a rosemary in a jar right now.
1: Yeah, it's growing roots. Okay. It's good. Uh, maybe we turn another different spot. there's more light. Oh, more light.
0: There's not enough light. Okay.
1: Uh, I it's
0: don't know how it works, but physically do. Nice and strong, no? Perfect. So, Cyril Bonet, you're a you're a pretty cool guy. <laughs> I don't expect <laughs> you to respond to that, but um, thank you. So, I'm going to introduce you here. You are a winemaker. And the reason that you are here today in Seattle is I am importing your wine. I think so. With Unicorn Imports. And we were introduced over one year ago, maybe a year and a half, by our mutual friend, Kane Gazowski. Merchant. Merchants of Thirst, yes. Of Thirst. I first met Kane in 2012 at the Slanted Door in San Francisco. I sat down, and he was there with his wife, Samantha, and it turns out that that same day, Kane and I had taken our Certified Sommelier exam, and we just happened to sit down next to each other at this bar in... After the sum exam? But before the results. Ah, Okay. And we got to talking, and we're like, oh, we're both in this exam, and we immediately became great friends. Just like, sometimes you meet someone, and boom, the connection is there right away. So we went... We both passed, and then for the rest of the night, just That's partied plan. a little too hard. But <laughs> no um, I've been great friends with Kane since, and you happened to be visiting Seattle last year. So, Kane, I was going to say he called me up, but nobody calls you up these days. He just sent me a message and said that you were going to be in town. So, we showed you around and had a great time, and we did planted the seed of an idea that it would be fun to, for me to import the wines. I don't even know if we talked about that then. Maybe not. Maybe not. I don't think we talked about it.
1: Maybe afterwards.
0: Maybe afterwards. So then I thought, okay, well, I'll start an import company and figure out how to do that. And kind of in short, the way that works is, you know, you start your LLC, you get just basic business things, business license, bank account. But then you have to apply for license through the TTB, And then once that's approved, here in Washington State, you apply for distribution license through Washington State after TTB is approved.
1: It's like California here. You can do both importing and distribution. You can do importing and distribution. And then through Medium Plus,
0: I have a retail license so I can capture all of the tiers, I guess, all uh, the customers.
1: You're the the man.
0: Oh, it's fun. (laughs) Well, I really like little projects, and so far... This is a very important project to me, but it's small enough that I can give your wines the attention they deserve. So it I'm... Grow, I'm yeah. It will grow slowly. It'll grow slowly. But I'm interested to ask you a few questions about champagne and wine and things. So Bon Ponson, the family line of growing vines goes way back. But yes. when
1: was that first generation? As you say, it grows way back in 16 or 1500 maybe since my family was always uh, in this area, in the Montagne de Reims, but uh, we like to date our house from 1862 when the grandfather of my grandfather, Jules Bonnet, started to sell his first bottle with his own name on it. So he, from being a, a grower, grape grower, and also a broker, he was a broker from moet he chandon a grower-producer, by building his own press, starting his own cellar, and his own bottling production. And so, at this time, he was selling both Champagne and Coteau Champenois in equal parts, maybe even more Coteau Champenois, so the still wine of Champagne. So we like to date it from this time, and bonnet Ponson started a little after that, when my grandfather, André Bonnet, married my grandmother, Monique Ponson. And then we started to be called Bonnet Ponson. But before that, there was a Champagne Bonnet and a Champagne Ponson in two different villages, Chamery and Vrigny, but both on the western part of the Montagne de Rance.
0: Mm. These days, what's the total area that you're growing? Ten
1: and a half hectares. And some of that is in Chamry and you have a, a little bits and pieces in Vrigny? Yep. So, ten and a half hectares are spreading. 4 hectares in Chamry, the village where we have the more. 3 hectares in Vrigny, 3 hectares in Coulomb la montagne just next to Vrigny, so these two villages is where my grandmother is from. Mm. And we also have 0.4 hectares in Verzenay, which is the only Grand Cru uh, part that Bonnet-Penson uh, has. And the rest are all Premier Cru. The rest is all Premier Cru, and um, the Verzenay part is not historically in the family. It's a vineyard that my father managed to buy in 2003. Wow. All Pinot Pinot Noir. All Pinot Noir. All Pinot Noir. Most of it is uh, over 50, 60 years old Pinot Noir, Selection Massale. The oldest field is 80 years old. It's still giving grapes. Not a lot, but um, very interesting grapes. So these are
0: all in the Montagne de hmm And... North side. If you're driving from
1: the farthest distance between the vineyards, it's probably 15-20 minutes? Between my two furthest parcels? Yeah. So it would be between Vrigny and Verzenez. And this would take you, I would say, almost 40 minutes. 40 minutes. Maybe 35 minutes. It's not very far, but it's just driving through vineyards and villages, so there's no, no highway.
0: There's no straight shot.
1: No, there's no straight line.
0: Yes. So when it comes to harvest time, like here in, in Washington State, the harvest can be rather protracted and spread out because the area is so big and things Great. are ripening at, in different times. hmm From the time you pick the first, typically, I'm on, on a consistent year. hmm your first harvest and your last pick.
1: Two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah, that's it. It's mm-hmm. very fast. Very fast, it's very intense. This is why we harvest for us. It's a, we need to be ready uh, one week before, and we spend a week to clean everything because during these two weeks it's lots of work. So we basically try to harvest all the grapes in 10 days of picking, but we stop during the weekend between these two weeks. So the team can rest a little bit and most of the time these two days when we stop allow the rest of the grapes to mature perfectly Mm -hmm. uh we start with a parcel in vrigny called le jour Mm. the day because this this parcel see the first uh, ray of light Mm -hmm. next year we will release a a new cuvée called Le premier jour the first day from this specific plot which is an old Pinot Meunier on the place of Rigny and so technically how we do it is um, we always harvest our Pinot Meunier first and then then the Chardonnay and Pinot can be harvested but more and more uh, we do the Chardonnay before the Pinot because mm. the Chardonnay mm. has this tendency to get ripe very fast when the weather is nice mm. and now we want to keep the maturity not too high because we still want to make bubble, not only still wine. So <laughs> we have to keep it around the 11, 11.5 for the Chardonnay. I and see. then the Pinot is harvested a, a little at the end because Pinot is very generous and the last uh, parcel to be harvested is the typically the young Pinot Noir because they usually give a lot of grapes. Even if you prune short, in a good year they will give you a lot of grapes. So you wait a little more for the grapes to be ripe. I see.
0: And you're also cultivating small amounts of Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, Petit yeah. Melier,
1: Arban. True. Very small amount of these four, but except for the Petit Mellier, for which we really, we planted um, a real parcel of 0.4 hectare, so. But this was three years ago, so it's still a very young vine, and this year we made a Two barrels with the 700 kilograms of grapes we have still. Two barrels? Yep, yeah, two barrels. Of Petit Melier. Of Petit Melier. Which is going to be a Coteau Champenois. Really? Yeah. It's too early to make champagne with this wine. I, uh, wow. I'm just going to blend one barrel with the other for my uh, seven grapes uh, reserve. And one is going to be bottled as a, as a still wine, uh, Coteau. That's amazing. And you, I was asking
0: you this earlier. You can. If you want to make rosé, Coteau Champenois.
1: Yeah, it's possible. Or... (laughs) To I
0: know. Or you can make an orange version. You were saying that there's some crazy guy doing that.
1: Some people try, but technically orange is not a color accepted by the the syndicat des vignons. (laughs) For good reason, I think. (laughs) Maybe. For champagne, at least. But uh, every batch of Coteau Champenois... Every batch of Champagne Rosé and every non-vintage is tested and analyzed by a committee. By the CIVC. By, uh, yes, it's an uh, annex of the CIVC. I see. Kind of. And uh, this is why we cannot do exactly uh, what we want. So making oran- orange wine in Champagne eh, is not totally uh, allowed, but... Some people under the radar do it. <laughs> just just because it's,
0: it's a bit trendy right now. Maybe. To do that. Maybe, maybe. We'll see. The future will tell. I know. I mean, natural wines, I think... Would you like some more coffee? Yeah, go ahead. I think natural wines are very much trendy right now. And I think there's good and bad. No, sure. I'll take a bit more. Very good. Yeah. Let me me see what we're drinking here. So this is Cloud City coffee roasting from here in Seattle, and we're drinking Guatemala Linda Vista light roast. It's pretty good. Congrats, uh, Cloud City. Good job, Cloud City. Yeah. Okay, so there's natural wine, and then there's natty wine. Yeah. That's true. (laughs) Right? So... And when I taste your wines, I just think, oh, this is a delicious, wonderful wine, and I, I love tasting it. But then you taste other natural wines, and you immediately know it's a natty wine because of brett, acetic acid, ethyl acetate, mouse, mouse. what is mouse anyways? Do we know chemically what it is? Yeah,
1: mouse is supposed to come from a bacteria. Uh, chemically, yes, it corresponds to a molecule. It's, the molecule is either identified, and ah, but the problem is this molecule. Uh, the state of this molecule depends of the oxidoreductive state of the wine. So, sometimes uh, when the wine is uh, takes some oxygen, you can taste the mouse. Afterwards, you don't taste it anymore, so it's it's very cyclic. And, uh, some wine, it's really true, some wine are, can be mousy one day, and very good another day. I've seen it, so but it gets a little, a little tricky. <laughs> On a fruit day, or a root day. Yeah, f- I don't know if it's really um, about that. but
0: I mean, I think it's great, like we're making a joke about maybe biodynamics. I think the idea of taking care of your vineyard is great, but...
1: It's a little bit hocus-pocus, too, right? Biodynamic? Yeah. Depends the way you do it. I mean, I think to do some good biodynamic, you really need a lot of knowledge about it, and knowing what you do. And taking the time to do it correctly, because it's not something uh, that can uh, be done halfway, I think. And uh, so far, I don't think there's probably a half of the biodynamic producer who really do it correctly another half who is doing it because the, they think it's a good idea, but they don't maybe really understand what's happening. Yeah. And biodynamic, biodynamic is very time consuming. So if you have a lot of time, a lot of employee, why not? In my case, uh, it's not really possible because we work 10 hectares organically. And it's five of us. So, so far, um, I haven't find the time to go into biodynamic. I decided to dedicate my time for other aspects that were, f- to me, a little more relevant to improve the quality of the grapes, the wine. But biodynamics, it's it's, it's very good, um, it can be a good way to go too. I don't want to judge or criticize, I just don't have the time to do it. Yes. And I was not uh, convinced also uh, enough that biodynamic uh, is... The only future of organic growing possible. It's one way. It's one way. It's one way.
0: Hmm. And there's some really wonderful biodynamic wines. Of course. I really course. love the Jolie, Coulé de Sauron wines. Mm-hmm. And I think La La Loi, she's a big biodynamic fan, right? In Burgundy and... Romani- Conti. Romanée Conti, sure. So, hey, why not?
1: No, no of course, Biodynamie But your focus is on organic for your vines. I am certified organic, so... But beyond, I want to go a little beyond that and try to reduce the copper sulfate as much as I can. Well, and that stays in the soil forever, right? That stays in the soil, not forever, because it's. people think copper is a heavy metal, just like... uh, Mercury. Just like mercury, but it's not. In the end, it's the same category in the periodic... uh, classification of elements but the difference it's that copper is used by uh, animal um, and vegetal uh, metabolism copper is in the composition of some Mm -hmm. of your protein copper is needed for an organism to function Mm -hmm. for both plants and animals uh, without copper many protein uh, cannot exist and don't work so copper is not exactly like mercury but as you said Every uh, living organism just needs a very tiny amount of copper. And if we use it too much, there is an accumulation. That's for sure. But to talk numbers, the amount of copper organic producers use now, even in champagne, is maybe 20, 30 times less than what was used at the beginning when they discovered the wee Bordelaise mm. and when they start using it to fight the mildew. Mm -hmm. Because at the beginning, it was the only way uh, for the wine grower to fight the mildew. They didn't know what was happening when the mildew arrived in in France, in Europe. Mm -hmm. But now with the technique, the spraying technique that we have, with the use of other plant preparation, of other things that you can, algae, you can use many things. You can use essential oil, many things that reduce the um, harshness of the mildew or reinforce the plant. We can really work with very small dose of copper sulfate. And next year, we're going to experiment a new technique that might allow us to stop with the copper sulfate.
0: The okay. mixture is copper sulfate and lime. And what, sorry? Lime. Lime? I
1: think so. Or it's like a limestone derivative. La bouillie borderless? bouillie borderless is just copper sulfate. Just copper sulfate? Yeah. And then, most of the time, we add sulfate. Add sulfate to it. Sulfate for the, uh, to the protection against uh, powdery mildew? Powdery mildew. Yeah. And downy or just powdery? Uh, so powdery mildew is oidium. Yeah. That's the Yeah. One. And then per- so perinospora is uh, downy. Okay. So downy mildew, uh, you control it with the copper and powdery with the sulfate. I see. A copper S- sulfate and sulfate. And sulfate. Yeah. And, but we can use uh, as organic or biodynamic, we c- there's many, many other solutions that you can use. You can use uh, basalt. You can use um, bentonite. You can use um, bicarbonate, potassium. Oh, really? Yeah. This works really good on powdery mildew. And next year, we're going to start using ozone. O-free. So I invested in an ozone generator, and maybe we might be able, if that works you might be able to stop with any sulfate, copper sulfate, yeah. anything. And so ozone the way it works, it's a very powerful oxidant. Yes. O three. But the good thing is it's produced on site by taking the O2 of the air, we dissolve it in the water, we spray this water on the plant, and if the time of contact with the leaf and the plant is long enough, the ozone in the water will destroy all the um, mildew, oedium, or botrytis. So we still need to really uh, improve and and, and know the settings to make it work. Mm. It's really new for us. But if it works, I mean, it's the future of uh, viticulture and agriculture in general. Because also there's no residue. In in 20 minutes, every molecule of ozone becomes oxygen. It goes back to O2. It goes back to O2 very fast because at our level, uh, this molecule is not stable. It's just stable very high. In the atmosphere. Yeah, ends the couche d'ozone. Right, in the mm-hmm. ozone layer. Exactly. And so that
0: connects more to a sustainability discussion. Of course. Right? So this is the difference. sustainability. So there's these kind of separate discussions of organic is sort of today... Sustainability is tomorrow and many years from now. So hopefully if you find success with that, it will be something that can carry on and work for generations more.
1: Yeah, that's the goal. Now we I think we know how to make good wines. The recipe is known. We can always improve, of course, but the biggest challenge for the future is to to find a way to grow the vine that it's not impactful. A way that respect the environment even better so we have to to make the wildlife come back we have to in a way to, well, to grow vine in a healthy environment and um, without using too much gas or maybe no gas maybe the future will be 100 percent electric there is many way there is many way but uh, we are we're looking searching one in my
0: experience of helping out at wineries there's always a lot of water being used that too so So figuring out ways of uh, managing
1: that saving water of course we use the ozone already in the in the cellar so because of that uh, this was the first use of ozone Mm. to clean barrel to clean the vat to clean the floor it's very good to clean everything yeah and uh, once you use that you need less water to rinse so this can already an improvement for us but collecting water, filtering our water, using less electricity, working... Uh, inertia. How can I say that? Inertia. Inertia. you know, the ability to keep temperature a long time. Kind of insulated? Yeah, kind of. The fact that some of our vats are in the cellar, in the cave, sorry. Yeah. Uh, allows us to put the wine inside and uh, the natural freshness of the environment is enough to maintain the wine at a good temperature without sure. using electricity. I understand what you mean. So we try to work to as much as we can <laughs> in this way. And yes, of course, say water, use less electricity. Uh, I mean, we will, everybody in the world will have to reduce their consumption of everything if we want to be able to share this planet still.
0: Yeah, for another, for another generation time, at least. At least. Yes. So right now I'm interested in learning more about the wines that you make. Aside from the new projects that you have, typically how many labels are you creating and setting the
1: market every year? So about seven. Seven? Yeah. I have two versions of my non-vintage blend, which is the biggest wine we make. It comes in extra brut with an aging of four years and non-dosé with an aging of five or six years. Then I have the. So this is the cuvée perpetuelle, the one that has the perpetual reserve proportion inside. Right. It comes in rosé also, mm. uh, extra brut rosé, so same perpetuelle with some reserve wine. So then it's three label. We have the vintage blanc de blanc, mm-hmm. les Vindieux from a single parcel, four label. We have the Jules Bonnet, our vintage blanc de noir, it's five. We have second nature, so my new cuvée, uh, using no sulfur, no, no dosage. Zero 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 <laughs> no, <laughs> just two times zero and uh next year second nature rosé maceration rosé pure pinot noir partially aging clay amphora the most funky wine mm. I made yeah a little it's a little crazy it's a little crazy very successful at Pro wine fair <laughs> uh, <laughs> ah yeah. they loved it There's uh, in la but it's not mousy it's not... what is funky about it yeah yes, some um little very little animalish, meaty character. Great. In the middle of some flour and fruit. So it's Mmm. Uh, it was a bit unexpected, this wine. To be honest, I hesitated before bottling it. I was not sure. Hey. But people like it this you, way. So. You got it. And then your, did you mention your Coteau of Champagne? Yeah, of I mentioned. So this was uh, the label for Champagne. And every year, I try to to make at least one cuvee of Coteau. Either white or red? Sure. And um, you don't do both every year. No, it depends. So most of the time I do one per vintage. But this is something new. I started to do it in 2014. So in 14 I made some red, in 15 some white, in 16 a red, in 17 a white. 18 was an exceptional harvest, so we did both, red and white. In 19 um, I'm going to make a white. Cool. Well, the Petit Millier. Always from Chimery wine uh, vines. Mostly, except last year, I made a Coteau Champenois from uh, Les Vignes the parcel, our oldest parcel of Chardonnay, the one we use for the Blanc de Blanc, technically. Sure. But 2018, ripening was very fast. And when we picked the grapes, it were 12.5. So after the aging in barrel, I mean, the wine was ready like that. didn't need any bubbles. So. We did a Coteau Champenois Les Vigne-Dieu.
0: But then you're planning on doing a Petit mélier Coteau, right? Yes, oh, probably. I've never had that. we we'll see if the wine is good. If it's good. If it's, if good. it's good,
1: you'll do so it. So far, it's tasting very interesting, but the mallow is not done yet, so it's difficult to, to say.
0: And your current production is about 70,000 bottles, but you're selling some <coughs> fruit. So if you kept all your fruit, it'd be closer to 100,000 bottles.
1: Yeah, um, I would say 85,000,
0: 90,000.
1: Mm. And now working organic, it's... 100,000 would be a little uh, maybe possible in the very exceptional vintage, but more an average of eighty-five, ninety thousand. 90,000, if I was keeping everything.
0: Yes. Which is I intend to do in the future. In the future, yeah, as time goes on. I wanted to ask if you can explain a little bit more about your process for the Extra brute Cuvée Perpetual, because I think it's a very unique technique. I don't think I've really seen it with other producers.
1: Some do it, but maybe they don't explain it, they don't talk about it. Um, This perpetual blending, uh, I mean, it's something um, that is uh, historical in Champagne. In the past, it was a a way for Champagne producer to be able to bottle good enough wine every year. Because some vintage were very difficult, the ripening was not always here, sometimes there was a lot of rot because of rain so the wine they were very uh, inconsistent i'm talking about my grandfather and my grandfather time so 50 60 years ago and so the good year the the good vintages the um, champagne winemaker wine grower they were wise enough to put aside a part of the good wine they produced at this harvest in prevision of the difficult harvest to come And uh, this leads to the creation of a stock of reserve wine constituted by uh, several vintage blended together. And so the way it works, um, we do, uh, at Bonnet-Ponson, our cuvée perpétuelle is a 60-40. So it's 60% of one harvest, of the latest harvest, plus 40% of wine from our perpetual reserve stock, Mm -hmm. which is kept in the cellar, Enamel vat in the cool atmosphere of our cave. Enamel is lining the concrete container? No, enamel on, uh, on steel. On steel. On steel. Some of them are kept in stainless steel too. I also have a concrete one, but fine. I have a little bit of everything. Sure. And this wine, so 60-40. In the fu- we're talking about in the bottled wine, it's 60-40. Yeah, it's 60-40, but... We do, at the, before doing our bottling, so we, we blend our wine. We take 60% of the current harvest mm-hmm. and 40% of the reserve wine. And this blend, the blend we obtain, is partially bottled. 60% of this blend is bottled and 40% is put back in the reserve. Oh, sure. Okay. To be the reserve for next year. So you're
0: replenishing the reserve with... Oh, you're drawing a diagram for me. That's good, okay. So we have, you
1: yeah. have your reserve that. This is my blend. Yeah. Okay, 60%. For instance, now we are selling the 2014 vintage. 60% would be the 14. Recent <coughs> vintage, yeah. And this would be the reserve, okay? This reserve is constituted of 60, uh, 60% of 2013 blend, okay, with a reserve from before, which is constituted of 60% of 2012 blend. Okay. Yeah, it's like a <laughs> fractal. Yes, exactly. It's uh, logarithmic. So, and then you go back.
0: It's that like, uh, the shape, I mean, even just the shape here is the that, snail. it's the snail shape, like that spiral. Okay. of the diagram you're drawing. I'll take a picture of this and put it as the so, logo.
1: Sorry, uh, my drawing is not very good. I think you got the idea. I get it, yeah. So 60, and when you draw that, you can uh, realize which proportion of which vintage it's in it. So it's mainly the three precedent. Huh? okay? 13, 12, and 11, because after the fraction is getting very small. It's but very trace, but it's still in there. It's
0: still here. Keeps a track. <laughs> Has it been this ratio for a long time? Of the sixty four? We 40? try,
1: we try. I mean, this is also a simplification and uh, not every year is the same. Sometime it, it was 55-45, uh, uh, yeah. uh, 65 uh, or 55, 45 or 55-45, but we try really to keep, to stick to that. Yes. Good. I'm glad I
0: I asked. That's cool. Well, we should probably get going to the airport. Maybe, I
1: have um, a flight to catch. You have to, yeah, Air France? France, of course, they serve champagne. Do they really? In economy class, they serve champagne for appetizer. What type of champagne do they serve? The type I don't drink usually, but yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> we have this one. We here. need to
0: get them on the Bonne Ponsan
1: uh, program. It could be a good, uh, good idea.
0: All right. Well, I will plan on seeing you in uh, spring. I'm going to come visit. I hope you do. Okay. Thanks, Cyril. Thanks, Nick.